Trump says Islamic State are days away from defeat, but is he right? What's the state of the union? Just look at the generals' faces. Why does Venezuela matter to us? The Gurkhas recruit their highest intake for 30 years. And where does the tornado sit in the RAF Hall of Fame? President Trump says he expects to be able to announce by next week that Islamic State fighters have lost all of the territory they had in Syria and Iraq. He's indicated that military forces have retaken 100% of the caliphate. It should be formally announced sometime, probably next week, that we will have 100% of the caliphate. But I want to wait for the official word. I don't want to say it too early. Well, the U.S. president has been speaking at a meeting in Washington of the U.S.-led coalition, which has been fighting IS since 2014. Over the past two years, we have retaken more than 20,000 square miles of land. We have secured one battlefield, and we've had victory after victory after victory and retaken both Mosul and Raqqa. Well, I'm joined by Dr. Afsal Ashraf, who served more than 30 years in the UK Armed Forces. He's now Assistant Professor of International Relations at the University of Nottingham, as well as BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Dr. Ashraf, what's left of IS in Syria and what's it doing? Well, as the President has just said in your clip, there's very little left of what happened after they were removed from Raqqa, from Mosul and the other large towns that they had occupied and created this so-called caliphate is that they um, started to coalesce around the Euphrates River Valley, some of the villages along the, the, the river valley, which were easy for them to, if you like, defend. And uh, they've now been, if you like, uh, not entirely removed, but their territorial control uh, has been gradually limited over the last six to nine months. And now I think the president is about to announce that they don't have territorial control. What that really means is exactly what he has said. They don't have anything that they can call a state. It doesn't necessarily mean that every single ISIS member has been killed or removed or imprisoned, um, but I think he can legitimately claim, if um, the, the, the ground truth is borne out by intelligence, that the idea of so-called Islamic State no longer exists, and ISIS or Daesh is now nothing more than a small or relatively small terrorist movement, albeit a potent one. Is it wise to make these kind of statements? I think it is in a in the sense that um, it does mark uh, a, a, a success, a degree of success, as long as it is uh, presented in a, in a in a in a contextual format that we they they do not have any territory that they can call a state. But if it's given, if it's uh, interpreted or presented in a way that suggests that ISIS or Daesh no longer exist as an identity, um, uh, their members no longer exist, that would be misleading. So uh, hopefully uh, the president's advisers will give him the right words. But I think it is important, not just wise, I think it's very important to identify that success because that success actually reinforces the failure of ISIS and Daesh as a an idea and as a radicalization force. It won't remove it, but it will reduce the likelihood of people being attracted to it because there is no such thing as a so-called Islamic State. And what kind of a difference do you think it will make extracting the 2,000 US Special Forces? 
I think the large difference will be um, to the uh, security of the YPG forces that are on the ground. Before we talk about that, I think it's important to recognize that uh, notwithstanding uh, President Trump's announcement, uh, a lot of the effort, a lot of the successes against ISIS and Daesh have been conducted by the Russians and by the Syrian forces on the ground. That's something that, for political reasons, is written out of the script. Um, they've captured a lot of territory. Uh, subsequently, groups such as um, YPG, with American help, considerable help, both air and ground, have had some successes. So when um, uh, the American forces leave, then the YPG is essentially unprotected. And the YPG is an affiliate or part of the PKK, which is a recognized terrorist movement, recognized by both the US and the UK, and is a, a major thorn in the side of the Turkish uh, uh, army and, and the Turkish uh, government. And uh, they have made it absolutely clear that they are not going to tolerate uh, uh, what they regard as a terrorist state on their southern border. And in this regard, of course, um, the Syrian uh, government doesn't want to have a part of its country carved out by uh, this uh, particular group that claims to stand for Syrian Kurds, but not all Syrian Kurds, of course, are part of YPG or PKK. Tell me, Professor, are we really saying there's a change of policy here in the United States, and that is to leave the battle against, for example, IS, leave that battle to the Iranians, the Russians, and the Syrians? Yeah, this is it's a little bit of a complicated situation. Policy as presented and policy in actuality are two different things. Policy, uh, until very recently at least, has been a regime change uh, and has been presented as a counterterrorism uh, effort. But uh, once it became clear after the Russians, shortly after the Russians got involved, that regime change was unlikely, then there's been a gradual swing towards. Um, uh, working with or alongside in parallel with the Russians and the and the regime to to get rid of ISIS as far as the president's concerned I think he's quite sincere in his belief that um, it is a, a counter-terrorism operation the the point I think now is that um, he's advisors particularly in the Department of Defense and others are very concerned about the reputation of the US in terms of using these proxy forces and then dumping them when they're not ne needed and that's exactly what the US did in Afghanistan just after um, the the Russians uh, left Afghanistan they just uh, dumped the mujahideen and all the, the, the Pakistani government and this has had a long-term impact and I think some of the officials working for the president want to mitigate the worst effects of that, and that's one of the reasons mm. why they're looking for alternatives. Dr. Ashraf, just once briefly to bring this home, let's talk about IS or its followers in the UK. Where does the UK's counterterrorism policy fit into all of this? Well, the UK's counterterrorism policy is a broad policy which doesn't just target IS, it targets other terrorist groups, including, including uh, right-wing extremists, and increasingly so. But what it does do is to look, identify groups or identify individuals or groups of people who are vulnerable to radicalization, and it deals with those in that respect. It is also a policy that looks at um, uh, 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 mitigating the effects of terrorist attacks through um, infrastructure and other protection. And it is a policy that um, pursues 
terrorists when they have identified them, particularly after attacks. Mm. And and so that policy I don't see as changing very significantly and, because of this. And just briefly, um, how at risk is the UK at the moment given the political instability? Uh, what, within the UK or elsewhere? Within the UK, <laughs> potential for a, a terror attack. I don't think that our security forces and our police uh, and indeed our military are in any way uh, letting their guard down. Uh, I don't think there is any major issue that the government needs to urgently deal with on the policy front. There is going to be a review of PREVENT, which is uh, of, of the, the, the counter-terrorism policy, which is something that is a routine review and doesn't have to be done urgently. So I don't for a minute think that there's a problem. The other good thing is that um, uh, Prime Minister Theresa May, with all her problems, is probably the best politician that we have in the UK with the greatest amount of experience at dealing with counterterrorism. And if, God forbid, we have an incident, I think she has so much experience she can deal with it without a great deal of reflection. Her instincts and her experience will see us through if, God forbid, we need her in an urgency. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Afsal Ashraf. Now, President Trump has been pretty vocal this week. On Tuesday, he made his State of the Union address in Washington. Scott Lucas, Professor of American Studies at the University of Birmingham, was watching. Hello, Professor Lucas. Good to speak to you. Um, This is when the President sets out his stall to Congress, if you like. Uh, This was his second time. What did you make of it? Well, first of all, the context around this made this very different. Uh, The State of the Union was actually postponed by a week and almost canceled because of Trump's shutdown of the federal government for five weeks. Uh, the House of Representatives, led by Nancy Pelosi, said no State of the Union until that shutdown ends. That domestic context, however, opened up into a wider context on both fronts. I think uh, the moment domestically was taken away from Trump when he sort of inadvertently or, or unwittingly started to praise his record at exalting a woman. Mm-hmm. And the women, Democratic Congresswomen, almost all clad in white, stood up and they hollered, they celebrated, they cheered, they applauded, they threw Trump off, and they drew the center of attention to themselves and their issues. I think that was a key moment domestically, but I think what might be interesting for your listeners was a moment that wasn't captured, except fleetingly, and that is twice Trump referred to the record-setting military budget. He talked about the American military being the greatest in the world. And when the camera looked at the commanders, Air Force, Navy, and Army, and their reaction to it, they sat with faces of stone. Mm. Uh, Clearly, they weren't going to be bought off with words because following up from your previous item, there is a great deal of military concern about Trump's uh, impulsive orders to pull out of Syria and possibly Afghanistan. There is a worry that he is generally unpredictable. And there is a lot of resentment that he effectively forced out Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, a four-star general, over the Syria withdrawal in December. Do you usually expect a reaction, though, from generals? Oh, I mean, you're not going to see them like the women in white high-fiving each other and whooping it <laughs> That's up. That's what I was thinking, you know? yes. But you do you do expect sort of a, a you know, a, a quiet nod of affirmation or at least, you know, a, a very, you know, settled look. What was being directed at Trump was very much a look which was going to give no give it all to him, no recognition on this. In other words, there is a furious battle going on across a number of fronts between the Pentagon, between the military and the White House. And Trump simply coming up there on Tuesday and taking credit for all these victories, like he did yesterday over ISIS, and then saying... Yes. Interestingly, well, he also took credit for us not being at... Well, the U.S. not being at war with North Korea, didn't he? 
Exactly. And this is the other part of where the military is unsettled beyond Syria and Afghanistan. And that is here you have a president who is going to have another summit with Kim Jong-un, even though the North Koreans have made no step to pull back from their nuclear weapons program, as U.S. intelligence, including defense intelligence, has confirmed. Here you have a president who has embraced Vladimir Putin, who has a foreign policy which might be seen as being very aggressive versus U.S. interest, including military interest. And of course, you have a president who has repeatedly insulted NATO and did again in the State of the Union on Tuesday night. Christopher Lee, what did you think of it? I thought a bit about um, with the generals. I got in all three services. You got an impression they'd been told to get in there, sit up straight, and uh, don't make any funny faces. You know, look cool about the whole thing. There is something big going on with the military at the moment in 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 between the Pentagon and, of course, the Department of uh, Treasury. And that is, there's a 4.7 percent shortfall at the moment in the in the United States Air Force. Uh, forward budgeting. And we know that, for example, the budget normally comes out at this time of year, then everybody discusses it right the way through and it, it, it gets ticked off or as as we can towards the end of the year. But that 4.7% is reflected also in the other two, in fact, three services and in also the, the National Guard. And this is something which we've always seen, but at this time it's real because there's nowhere that money's going to come from. And he is going to be have to justify at some point why the money isn't being spent. And one of the reasons he'll say is because I'm bringing a everybody home. Mm. Scott Lucas, I mean, he did say um, that uh, he didn't want any more foolish wars, didn't he? Well, first of all, on that budgetary point, one other source of aggravation for the Department of Defense is as they are facing trying to get more money at a time when there's a record set of federal uh, deficit, Donald Trump threatened to take $14 billion away from them mm. uh, to try to fund his wall. With That's Mexico. the 4.7%. Yeah, exactly. And mm. in other words, so instead of, you know, talking about military readiness, he's using money on this vanity project. And you can see his declaration, I'm getting us out of wars, is another vanity project. Mm. I mean, following up what your previous guest talked about, if Trump had given a very settled reason, a very considered reason where we are in Syria versus the Islamic State and other groups, if he had given a settled you know, idea of where we are in Afghanistan, fair enough, but he didn't. When he decided to come out of Syria, he did so during the middle of a phone call with the Turkish president. He didn't consult the military, didn't consult any advisors. And that lack of considered thinking is increasingly worried the, uh, worrying the military, again, because mm. the guy who had shielded them, Jim Mattis, is gone, replaced by a Boeing executive, mm. Pat Shanahan. Uh, Professor Lucas, um, Christopher and I were looking at it earlier and talking about, just on a purely visual point of view, but perhaps quite important, do you think Donald Trump, in terms of the way he presents himself, is becoming more presidential? His body language seems to have changed in a way we noticed that, that, that sort of marked a bit of a, a move. He was tied a bit to the teleprompter on Tuesday night, so he wasn't as flamboyant. And in fact, it took him quite a while to, to warm up to the speech because of that. But by and large, whether it's Tuesday night or in general, Donald Trump is a showman. He's a showman at his rallies. He's a showman at his press conferences. Now, things are going well for him. He's that very confident showman. The problem here is right now is things aren't going well from him, from the Trump-Russia investigation to the Trump shutdown, which was a big setback because he didn't get any money for the wall, to Democratic control of the House of Representatives. He's on the back foot. I think the military know that, and I think that increasingly Trump as showman is going to come across as not quite as confident but being defensive. Please love me. Please love me. Please adore me. Professor Scott Lucas, good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time today.
Still to come, selection for the biggest intake of Gurkha recruits in 30 years. And how will the RAF tornado be remembered? But first, let's talk about the political crisis in Venezuela. Opposition leader Juan Guaido has declared himself interim president after large protests against the current socialist president, Nicolás Maduro. Uh, Christopher why has Venezuela, this country in South America, attracted the concern and attention of the world? Because it ain't just a little country in the sixth continent which doesn't exist. Uh, the Russians are involved. The Russians are on the side of the present uh, uh, president, President Guaido. Uh, the Chinese are, and there are, are there on their, his side for one particular reason, and that is they, they have uh, interest in the gold, uh, the oil, uh, the gas and interesting food supplies. They also see it as a military uh, setup. The Russians at the moment just put down two uh, nuclear bombers into into Venezuela and the crews and the ground staff and the command structure. Um, they, there's something like a 10.7 billion outstanding uh, military spend by the previous president, President Chavez. With, with Russia. They are committed to it. Now, what you've got is this. President, uh, President uh, Trump has said, you get, must go. And Guaido, the, the opposition leader, must become president. Um, we have backed up. United Kingdom has backed that up. Uh, the uh, 20 other countries especially in, in, in Europe, have backed it up. And this is totally unusual. Just imagine what would somebody would say, we don't like your ideas about Brexit, so therefore you well, must go. What, that's my next question. At what point is it OK to intervene in this kind of situation? Well, it might be intervention in a, in a way that we don't really sort of, or we can't really imagine. Um, back in October, I was in Washington and somebody said to me, do you know the guy, as they called him, the guy has actually sort of said, can we put half a division down there on the border with Venezuela? Now, that is that is quite startling. Mm, uh, I remember you to, talking about it at the time. Yeah, and um, that is quite a startling thing to claim to do. I think what we've got to remember here is that the army or the military is supporting the existing president. So they're against... Because they're being paid to do so. Well, not only that. You see, when, when Chavez was in was in power, the predecessor was in power, what he did, he said to all the generals and said, no, you get behind the barracks. That's where you belong. I don't want any interference with you. When Maduro came, on, uh, came, came into power, um, the Russians, who'd got all these billions of defence contracts going with him, uh, said, uh, you don't do that. What you do, you put a general in command of oil, mm. one in command of gas, one in command of food. The present head of the National Guard, for example, is in, in char charge of food. If you do that, you do two things. You guarantee their loyalty because they're all shipping loads of money at the moment into seven banks in Uruguay uh, earlier this week, something like $4.7 billion, not million, billion uh, US dollars went from went from Venezuela under their names into Uruguay, uh, Ecuadorian banks, not Uruguayan banks, sorry. Now, the important thing this is Russia is a standoff with Washington, and that is the bigger picture. And what happens next then? Uh, what happens next is that the, the, the existing president will eventually have to test the loyalty of the army, and there are signs that the army will be given freedom, They'll be told, don't worry about what you've done before, because there have been terrible sort of atrocities as well. And the army was backed down. The army will be reorganized. That's the long-term view. In the meantime, the United Kingdom, what's the United Kingdom interest in what's going on in South America? 
I'll tell you what it is. We've got a base in the Falklands. Christopher, stay with us. Now, selection for the Gurkha intake of 2019 has just been completed in Nepal and it's bigger than ever with the largest number of Nepalese recruits joining the British Army since 1985. Well, our reporter, Hannah King, went to see the whole process and joins us now. Hello, Hannah. Where did you go and what did you see? Right, so we were in Pokhara for the final selection. So just just for a bit of background, the recruiting process for for the Gurkhas starts around about March and they have this huge recruiting campaign where retired Gurkhas, um, who used to wonderfully be called Galawalas, they now call them senior recruiting officers, um, tour Nepal and they, they basically try and reach out to everybody and spread the word that anyone can join the British Army. It's not just certain families or certain backgrounds. It's not just if you're a Garung or a Rai. Uh, anyone who's good enough can join. Then in September, they hold regional selection, uh, one in the west and one in the east of Nepal. And then when it comes to January, February, they hold the final selection. So about 580 of an initial 10,000 candidates are invited back to Pokhara and they have around about two weeks in camp where they're intensively tested with educational and physical tests, jerry cans, power bags, all the usual things. Um, and perhaps the main event, though, is the, the doco race, which mm. is obviously the, the really unique thing about becoming a Gurkha. Indeed. And why has there been such a big intake? Because presumably the selection criteria are just as tough. Yeah, I, I think, well, obviously over here, the army are recruiting quite intensively and numbers are down. Um, in Nepal, every year, they, you know, they have consistently around about 10,000 young men all desperate to join the British Army and they'll give you know they'll, they'll do pretty much anything to get in there you know they work so hard and they make good soldiers and at the start of the process um, the recruiting team were looking for around about 320 new recruits and it was quite a last-minute decision actually that the army suddenly said actually we'll, we'll take 400. Mm. What was the most surprising thing about your trip? Uh, I think probably just the the passion that the the, the young men have, you know, to to join our army. It never really ceases to amaze me. Um, and the, also the extent that the British Army will go to to avoid corruption, and there is a lot of corruption. So, as an example, fraudsters will ring the families and say, look, you know, your, your son's got through to the final stages, he's doing really well, and if you give me this money, um, we, we can get them in. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the British Army go to all sorts of measures to try and, and stop this happening. As soon as they're in, they give them, they hand them a phone. They pretty much have to read off a script that says, you know, Mum, I'm, I'm in. Everything else, I'll tell you later, but I'm in. Don't give anyone any money. Um, and, you know, they, they really do do everything they can to sort of make sure that it is, um, it is fair. Um, and like I say, that, you know, the, these boys will, will, put everything on the line for this. I, I've got a short clip that you might want to just end with. This, uh, this is the re the officer commanding of British Gurkhas, uh, Pokhara, Major Sandy Nightingale, just sort of explaining how much it does mean to these young men who apply. We see a massive spectrum of Nepali society. You know, we have people from very, very poor backgrounds who's maybe who are orphans. You see everything in that room, which is why we don't allow you guys to go in there. It means so much to them to get in because they've, a lot of them might have gambled everything on this. Uh, and, you know, it's quite a, a raw environment, actually. Um, yeah, hard for you emotionally. Yeah, well, I think it's, well, everyone, really. You know, we, we are obviously emotionally invested. It's impossible not to be. 
Christopher, emotionally invested, I suppose it's not that surprising, is it? Well, it's not that surprising. I mean, lots of things here. One is that the British the British Army is under undermanned at the moment, so they want more people. Secondly, the Gurkhas have always sort of lined up, sort of, please take me, because what else are they going to do? It's the best job they'll ever get in the whole of their lives. But I think it's a very important thing here, and that is, oh, the other thing, of course, is they're cheaper to buy than, than the average chap that you, you recruit off the street in the United Kingdom. The other thing is, what do the Gurkhas do today that the British Army cannot do today that it needs? And given the the difficulties sometimes of how the Gurkhas are paid and, and why they're doing this sort of post-colonial image sort of thing, that, I think, is going to become uh, more of a question asked in the next few years. The futures of the Gurkhas is not not uh, sort of sealed, mm. sealed in lead. And Hannah, just before you go, um, uh, you mentioned the Doko race, uh, this huge challenge that they have to pass. I, I believe you, you did it yourself. How'd you get on? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was, I was about 10 seconds short of becoming a Gurkha. Um, <laughs> Apart from, the, apart, apart from the fact that I have hyperextending elbows, so I would be out anyway. So this what is a, called noodle a, a, arm. I, I, <laughs> so this is, a, this is a, a challenge where you have to do it, you have to run up a mountainside yeah. and just describe it. Yeah, so, yeah, so the docker race is you essentially have 25 kilograms of uh, sand sitting in a basket um, attached by a strap around your forehead. So you carry it on your back, but it's kind of suspended around the forehead. And the course is five kilometres up a mountain in the Himalayan foothills um, and quite sort of um, mm. gravelly steep tracks and steps and yeah it's lovely and you almost <laughs> made it but not quite <laughs> almost almost Hannah not quite I think I'll, I'll leave it I'll leave it to the Gherkins there's always next year <laughs> Hannah King thank you now the RAF's tornado jets returned home for the final time this week after nearly 40 years service the fast jets first entered service in 1979 and have been used in major operations across the world including the recent campaign against Islamic State militants in Syria and Iraq so how will the tornado be remembered. Well, last year, the Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Hilliard, told me the tornado was a particular favourite of his. In, in my heart, uh, my first frontline aircraft is the tornado. Uh, I continue to fly the tornado. The tornado will be uh, finally retired from service. How often do you fly the tornado? Um, as often as I can. Really? When well, <laughs> um, was the last time you flew one? Uh, two weeks ago. Really? Uh, two weeks ago today. Uh, so, one of the perks of the job, I suppose. <laughs> Well, it, it's, for me, it's part of uh, staying in touch with what we ultimately are as an Air Force, which is delivering air power. Well, the tornado will officially be retired from service at the end of March. Let's talk to aviation expert Paul Beaver. Hello, Paul. Uh, where does the tornado sit in the RAF Hall of Fame? Well, it's got to be pretty much up there, hasn't it? It's got to be, um, considering it 28 years of active service, considering the conflicts it's been in, it's almost the hasn't been a day in the last certainly two last two decades when it hasn't been on a war footing carrying um, you know, live rounds live uh, ammunition and, and stores and somewhere and, and particularly in Afghanistan and, and the Middle East and the Iraq campaign of course all of those things so putting me on a spot and saying where does it come well it, it's got to be up there um, with the likes of the Lancaster and the Second World War because it just is an iconic aeroplane. And talk to anybody in the Royal Air Force about the Tonka hmm. and they're going to tell you that, uh, you, know, that the, you want to be on a Tonka squadron, you want to, to, to be, whether it's ground crew or air crew, um, it's about that sort of capability. Uh, Paul, I'll give you an alternative. Mm. Um, the F-4, the Phantom, 
that always had the same we recognise it, we know what it does, and it was there for a long time. And you can even go off later on to another air force like the Israelis and find they cleaned mm-hmm. up the engine. Uh, Paul, and, do you want to come back on it. that? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, the Phantom, great, but but didn't didn't to do. I mean, it's a lovely looking aeroplane. It's an aeroplane I grew up with. I'm of that generation, um, but it didn't deliver as uh, as uh, the tornado has. The operations out of Akrotiri in the last two three years um, uh, in Opshada, um, you know, a, a brilliant example of an aircraft that that was never designed to carry some of these weapons, you know, Brimstone and, and Storm Shadow, they've been put on. The Storm Shadow capability uh, with Tornado, with the tanking capability, gives the Royal Air Force huge reach. Mm. Um, it's going to be difficult to replace it, particularly the, the Raptor pod, the, um, the amazing reconnaissance pod it's got. That isn't planned to go on Typhoon. Typhoon's going to carry everything else. So have you, how often have you flown in one, Paul? I, I haven't. Because never! I'm, I'm a helicopter pilot, and the whole idea of going into a jet... Not even um, as a fan you've been into no, one. No, because far too, far too high. They fly at 250 feet. Who wants to be up there? I get a nosebleed up there. You're too scared to go up in one, yeah, are you? Yeah, I am far too scared to go up in one. I mean, your ejection seats and having to wear all this kit. No, no, no. I'll stick to helicopters. I'm very happy at helicopters, but it doesn't stop me from appreciating something that is magnificently good. And I think, you know, we... We are, however, concentrating on on the uh, on the the tornado GR, mm. the ground uh, uh, ground attack reconnaissance bomber aircraft. We have to remember there was a fighter variant, the F three. And there it wasn't brilliant. Okay, it wasn't brilliant. On that note, we will leave it for today. Paul Viva, thank you very much for your time. That is all we have time for this week. If you've got an opinion you'd like to share about something you've heard on the programme, you can tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. Join us again next week from me, Kate Chabot. Thank you for listening. Bye bye for now.